We need to understand where we collect consumer data, what we collect, where and how we store it, and who we share it with. Sounds reasonably simple. For a lot of organizations, it's not. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where each week we'll talk to a different mover or shaker in the legal and technology field. We'll learn a little about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get some real-world tips that will help lawyers better use technology in their legal practices. In this, our lucky number episode 13, we talk about data privacy laws with Justine Gottschall of Info Law Group. In our legal founder segment, we talk to Morris Massel about the company he founded, Court Solutions, which is revolutionizing the way attorneys can make telephonic court appearances. In most of the episodes so far, our topics have focused on how lawyers can voluntarily use technology and new methods of working to improve how they practice their craft and deliver services to their clients. But one of the things we haven't really talked about is what happens when technology changes the way lawyers practice when they don't have a choice. That is, when changes in technology in the world in general seeps into legal practice and forces attorney to change how they do things. One of these changes is related to the collection of information on the internet and data privacy issues. So when I asked Justine to come on the podcast and talk about data privacy laws, my goal was twofold. Goal number one was for her to give a high-level primer to lawyers and others working at law firms that aren't steeped in data privacy law on a daily basis. A primer that would help those working at law firms to start thinking about how to answer questions their clients might ask about data privacy and maybe find some ways to help clients be proactive about data privacy. But the second reason I wanted to get Justine on the podcast to talk about data privacy laws is that law firms are not immune from the requirements either. As you will hear, many law firms might very well be subject to the data privacy laws being enacted both here in America and abroad. And even if not, there's no question that some of their clients will be subject to these laws. Justine is a good one to talk about data privacy because she started her practice as a litigator in D.C. where she worked under a former Federal Trade Commission commissioner. Justine ended up working on the first FTC investigation of privacy practices in the early 2000s. It was an investigation into DoubleClick, an internet advertising company. So Justine got into data privacy work on the ground floor. She ultimately ended up in Chicago, and about 10 years ago, she came aboard at Info Law Group. Info Law Group's a national boutique law firm that focuses on several areas of practice, including information governance, privacy and data security, advertising, marketing, media, technology, and intellectual property. I consider myself a reformed litigator, although I think that background can be very, very helpful no matter what you wind up doing. And I wound up on a team. I was at Hogan and Hartson, which is now Hogan Levels in DC. And I was working for Christine Barney, who had been a commissioner of the FTC and had come back to Hogan. And I wound up on her team and started doing some technology cases and ultimately was involved in the first major FTC and ultimately multiple AG investigation into privacy practices. And really from there, what we call the double-click case, the real practice of privacy as a legal specialty was born. And I was lucky enough to get in on the ground floor and drafted some of the first privacy policies that were ever put on the web, worked on the first draft of the NAI online advertising principles, the very first ones before they came out. Um, And I've really done almost nothing but privacy and then data security technology related type of work since. So tell me about Info Law Group. How many attorneys, the specialties, what do you you focus on? We're 12 lawyers 
Um, and we do, we're a national boutique and we do privacy, advertising, and technology and almost anything connected with privacy and data security, technology, agreements, compliance issues, and privacy, um, and advertising and marketing, we do. And that's all we do. We hope we do it very well, um, but we do a few things in sort of a laser-focused way. And the sweet spot for the firm, what types of clients? Clients of any size, clients of a certain size, any particular industry niche? I assume no, but... We do work with a wide range of industries and a wide range of sizes. We work with everyone from Fortune 500 companies to what I call my emerging companies, probably past the sort of startup in a garage phase, but still early on, maybe Series A funding or even angel funding. So we work with a wide range of companies. We certainly work with a lot of large social media companies, a lot of large entertainment companies, a lot of technology companies, everything from people in uh, fintech or edtech to obviously online advertising companies. And we work with retailers as well. We have a number of retail clients. For the first part of this year, 2018, you couldn't pick up a legal industry publication that didn't have an article about GDPR, the EU's General Data Privacy Regulation. I guess the good thing is, with all these articles about GDPR, it cut down on the number of articles about AI and robots. But, as we will hear, changes in data privacy laws aren't limited to the EU. Just a few weeks ago, California also enacted a data privacy law for its citizens. But the GDPR came first, and as Justine explains... The GDPR provides certain rights to EU citizens regarding the personal information collected by companies selling goods and services to EU residents. Certainly within the EU, privacy has always been viewed as a fundamental right. The GDPR was sort of a a new version of what had been some existing regulation. It's the General Data Protection Regulation. But this idea that there's regulation in Europe, that there are certain fundamental rights in Europe, that companies had some obligations, has existed for a very long time. GDPR did change its broader, expanded certain rights. It, It certainly was a very significant piece of regulation that I think a lot of companies spent a great deal of time and resources to come into compliance with. We also have this new California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, the CCPA. That, I think, is also this idea that you're starting to see more and more a sense, I think, from our government regulators that there has to be some rules um, that are governing some of the data collection, that consumers are simply not able to fully understand or protect their own privacy or even express their preferences without some sort of rules that, that require certain things. The, the California Act's just not a, a mini GDPR, right? I would not call it a mini GDPR. I would call it a, a regulation in the same vein, a statute in the same vein. There's certainly a number of similarities that I think will cause people to say, oh, it's it's the GDPR. That's certainly true. It's giving certain fundamental rights to consumers, the right to access and understand the data that's been collected, the right in some cases to ask for deletion, the right to be able to transfer that data under many circumstances from one organization to another. 
There are certainly though some important differences, and I I would never say that if you were in compliance with GDPR that you were done. Certainly, any company that's made really significant steps to be in compliance with GDPR is going to have a leg up and is going to be fairly well along their way in terms of being able to put in place the processes that need to be put in place um, for the California regulation. As Justine will explain, the GDPR not only applies to EU companies, but it can also apply to companies outside the EU if they offer goods or services to or monitor the behavior of EU citizens. In a similar vein, the California bill applies to any business that collects a California consumer's personal information if the business also meets one of three other tests that Justine will explain. Well, generally, the GDPR is going to apply where you target or market to EU consumers, or you do business within the EU and you collect personal information on those EU consumers um, or EU residents is a better term to use. So not so not every U.S. company is going to have to deal with this because they're not targeting EU. Not every U.S. company has to comply with the GDPR. It was very broad in scope and certainly ensnares a number of companies who maybe previously felt that they were not subject to European regulation because you're doing, say, some online sales and shipping right. uh, to the U.K. or you're shipping to Spain or whatever that might be. It's, it's not necessarily going to cover every single Um, U.S. company, even where you may wind up sort of getting a small amount of information from an EU resident. I mean, a good example would be if you're not advertising in the EU, but perhaps you have some form of entertainment venue here. Somebody may come here from the EU and may pay with a credit card. At some level, then you've collected information from an EU resident. But if you're not advertising your venue in the EU and you're not specifically targeting EU residents, you're not suddenly subject to their regulation because you process their credit card in the middle of Texas, right? That's that's one good example, probably. Okay, so let's, let's talk about California then. Who are the businesses that are subject to the new California privacy law? For most, it does sort of encompass also some sort of data broker idea, but for most companies, they're going to get pulled in either because they do over $25 million. We have gross revenues of over $25 million, annual gross revenues. It's unclear whether or not one could say that you had to do $25 million in California, but, you know, right now the language is, appears to be pretty broad, that if you're doing business in California and you have annual gross revenues of more than $25 million, it will also pull in any company that's sort of receiving or sharing. But for most companies, let's go with receiving, right? You might process a credit card, for example. Um, personal information of 50,000 or more individuals or households, or devices per year. That's a pretty low threshold, right? That's likely to pull in your mom and pop ice cream shop. So, and it's not limited to online. So I think that's an important thing. I think that that's obviously primarily going to be within California if you're not online. It's going to be within California if you're not online. But I think $25 million is a pretty low threshold, but I think 50,000 or more records is really a very low threshold on an annual basis. I think there are a lot of companies that will probably be pulled in. So any company that derives 50% or more of annual revenues from selling consumers' personal information will be pulled in. 
And I think I recall talking to somebody or reading somewhere that the California law was maybe a response to or trying to do an end run around a citizen initiative. Is that is that true? Yes. So that is sort of gotten a lot of press good and bad, um, that the way the process worked, and I am not an expert on the uh, way the Constitution works in California, but that there was a referendum that was going to be put on the ballot that um, the voters of California would vote on, but that those referendums become outside of the legislative process. And therefore, sort of once they're there, are very difficult to amend um, or to make tweaks to or those sorts of things. And so there was a negotiation between the person behind the referendum and the legislature, as I understand it, to sort of craft this statute, this act as a compromise or, or as an acceptable alternative, the referendum was withdrawn. And so in very, very short order, I believe two weeks or less, we had the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. As a result, as you might expect, there certainly are some pretty significant or, or places where, and I think we will get at least some tweaks. Let's step away from our talk with Justine for just a couple minutes, because now it's time in the podcast for our Legal Tech Founder segment. Each week, we talk to a founder of a legal tech startup. This week, we're talking to Morris Massell, the founder of Court Solutions, an app that makes it easier on courts and lawyers to make telephonic court appearances. Hey, Morris, thanks for being here today. Tell us a little bit about your company. Well, Court Solutions is a telephonic appearance platform that we started a couple years ago, and what Court Solutions does is it makes it easier for people to appear in court. Instead of people going to court, which sometimes just doesn't make sense for highly routine or small matters, it allows people to call in. But what it does for the judge and for everyone else involved is it doesn't have the sacrifices that the phone would usually have. So we have a visual interface that shows the judge and everyone on the call who's on the call provides information about them, their firm, their clients, uh, their names, when they're speaking, but it also gives the judge control over them. So if someone's rude enough, by accident usually, to be broadcasting music into a courtroom, the judge, without having to hang up the line or do anything like that, can just click a button right on the screen and mute people. And there are all kinds of fantastic controls like that that really make a difference and make it more accessible for people to get to court. And how do participants access it? How does the court access it? How do attorneys access it? Sure. Um, the way it works is, is that uh, judges, we work with judges individually and bring them on board, and they just need a phone and a strong internet connection. That's it. Um, we built this because we recognize that courts don't have funding to go out and buy new equipment and installation or co-location of equipment is very complicated. We want it to be very simple. In the day and age we live in, I don't need to tell you that we all kind of are used to things just happening. And for attorneys, they go to the website, they register, um, and they ask for approval to participate. Again, all web-based. And once they are able, once they have approval to participate, they just call in like a regular phone, be their cell phone, their office phone, any old phone works. And they can also see the same interface on their computer. And what was the inspiration for you to develop the app? Well, I have practiced as a bankruptcy lawyer for 17 years. So I did a lot of telephonic appearances. And as a young lawyer, I remember it very clearly. Uh, sitting in my office in New York City, I had to make an appearance in a case. It was for the Buffalo Sabres. They were in bankruptcy. I was representing a client there. And that case was up in rightfully in Buffalo. And at the time, I was sitting on the phone listening to some complex hearing. 
and myself and everybody else on the phone had to listen to someone going to the bathroom on the phone. It was really, <laughs> it was mind boggling. Um, obviously it was an accident by that person, but you know, we all listened. And at that time, uh, none of us, I don't think, I mean, texting might've been around, but we certainly weren't texting. We were emailing with each other saying, did you just hear what I heard? And we were all flabbergasted. And you could hear this dramatic pause in the courtroom as those sounds unfolded. So for me, that kind of I filed that away and said, huh, there's got to be a better way to do this. And some number of years later, as the tech de uh, developed better around this space of telephony and uh, that integration, I said, you know, this is a real opportunity to make a difference. And tell me a little bit about how you had the app developed. Did you develop it yourself? Did you hire developers? Or what were the, yeah. the nuts and bolts? Yeah, so were? the way it worked for me, I'm a lawyer by training, and I love tech. Um, but when it comes to straight coding, which is obviously at some point, it's great to have an idea. You can sketch it out. You can do a PowerPoint. You can do design. And any lawyer, banker type can probably do that rather proficiently as they think through the steps. But you have to code the thing to make it work. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And I looked, if you will, in my network, there were two friends of mine, what I would call, quote, the tech people. One is a self-described entrepreneur, and now I know that he's uh, deeply involved in um, uh, virtualization. So not quite the space that I was in. And the other guy was someone I got very close with, uh, happened to be on the user support desk at the firm I was working at. And so I started talking to them. And I did what I think, I, as a lawyer, I was trained to do is, through them, I met people. And I started asking questions. And the hardest thing to do is to not just ask questions, but listen to the answers, get an answer you may not understand, but know enough from that answer to ask the next question to see, is this real or not? And eventually made my way over to um, a great guy. Uh, his name's David, David Pollack, um, who runs his own development shop. And we said, all right, let's give it a try. And what we did, since I didn't know David, but I read all over the place about the problems of vaporware and not knowing if you're going to get what you think you're going to get, and also not always knowing to ask for what you really want. And I would ask David, I'd say, I want this. And he'd say, no, you don't. I'd say, well, what do you mean, no, I don't? No, I really do. And he'd say, no, 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 you don't. Have you thought of X, Y, and Z? And I'd say, mm, nope, didn't think about that. What is that? And so it was a learning process for me. Thankfully, over the years, our relationship has deepened into a real very mature and very uh, uh, deep friendship. But it was a process of asking, being unafraid to ask, and being unafraid to compare notes across lots of different conversations to figure out the knowledge that I needed to make the right decisions. Well, that sounds great. And tell me, it's, it sounds like for now, it's mainly focused on use in bankruptcy courts. Where are you and what courts um, are you using you currently? Sure. Um, well, we started in bankruptcy courts because that's, that's, those are the people that I knew. And they're the people, it happens to be multi-party litigation is a great place for this, although this is very powerful in any kind of civil litigation setting. So we started actually with our very first judge was in the District of New Jersey. They gave us a shot. And the administrative folks there really are innovators and forward thinkers. And we're also very close with the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Court. And they, too, got on board with us very early. So since then, we've expanded. We're now um, in the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Court, New Jersey, all over the state of Virginia. We're expanding in Florida, uh, Missouri, uh, St. Louis, where um, the Payless Shoes, for example, filed for bankruptcy. Chicago, Michigan, Ohio, and you know, there's some other, I'd say, very big systems that are on tap to come on board in the very, very near future. 
Uh, we also had the very good fortune of starting in the Delaware Chancery Court. And for the lawyers out there who know the space, that's probably one of the premier business courts. It's where a lot of shareholder actions are brought. And one of the judges there um, is a real forward thinker when it comes to tech and really unafraid. And so we've been working with his court now for a while, and they love it. And what's great is, is that we're able to uh, host dozens, if not hundreds of people on a single call without a problem because it's all cloud-based. Well, great. Morris, appreciate your time today. And if people want to learn more about Court Solutions, where do they find you? They can find us at court-solutions.com. And there's a lot of information about us at judges.court-solutions.com. So thank you very much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Okay, let's get back to our talk with Justine Gottschall on data privacy laws. As we've heard, both the GDPR and the California law protects the private data of consumers. But what does that mean? What is a consumer's private data? So personal information is defined exceedingly broadly. Um, It includes what we would all consider personal information, which we might call contact information, right? Your name, your phone number, that sort of thing. It's also going to include biometric information. It's going to include geolocation data, which has not been fully defined, typically In the privacy world, we consider what we call GPS-level data perhaps as personal information, but not necessarily zip code level or even neighborhood or maybe, you know, a little bit more narrow data, but that's not defined in the statute. So that, that may be a big open question. It also includes online identifiers, IP addresses, those sorts of persistent identifiers. That is also very similar to the GDPR in terms of the breadth of the personal information. And there may not be an answer to this yet. It seems to me, just some of the stuff you said there, there, there's a lot of tech companies out there, the B2B tech companies, that collect a lot of this information on behalf of the users. So for instance, at my company, we use a couple pieces of software to handle customer support. I know they're collecting IP addresses. They're collecting information for us. Would my company, assuming they met some of the thresholds, would my company be subject to that because someone else, a third party? app is collecting information or we have any idea on that yet? I think that's really going to get down to who is really collecting. So is this a service provider who is only acting on your company's behalf, is not allowed to use it, is really stepping into your shoes? Then there are some responsibilities under the statute for service providers, but your company, it's really being collected for you, right? So your company, for example, if you came and said, I want you to delete my data, you'd be interacting with your company. They may need to loop in the service provider, but all of that is sort of being done under the umbrella of the company. If the service provider is really having an independent relationship, you might be, you know, even in the example where you might be applying for a job. So you're applying for a job with company A, but you know you've set up an account with an online service that processes resumes and you have an account with that service and, you know, you might apply to four jobs through that service. That's a different relationship. And that company is really interacting with you individually. But I really think it's going to fundamentally come down to those thresholds that we just talked about and whether or not you fall under the statute and then to what extent in each circumstance, because there may be times where as a company you're subject to the statute And you would have certain responsibilities with consumers, but there may be other times where you're really acting as a service provider and arguably just need to support the company that is subject to the statute. I guess it's not surprising that California would be on the forefront of this, but the federal level, what if anything's going on there? That is a little unclear. I think that there, um, 
is certainly, at least within some of U.S. industry, some hope that perhaps there might be an appetite for a federal overarching Consumer Privacy Act, which might give industry a little bit more opportunity to have what we might consider a more balanced or, you know, more well thought through act. And that more importantly, would set a threshold that everyone could comply with. I think there's fairly significant concern that if you have multiple states enacting these types of acts, but that they're not identical, that it will simply become overwhelming, if not impossible, for many companies to comply. And I think what also gets forgotten is that your really big technology companies who might have a lot of resources, both in terms of internal personnel as well as budget to address some of these things are one thing, but you have a lot of smaller companies. And in many ways, do you wind up killing innovation? Do you wind up you know, preventing new disruptors from coming into the market because the cost of entering the market becomes so overwhelming as you're trying to figure out how to comply with all of these competing regulations? I, I don't think that's an unfair concern. I think it's a very fair concern. And I think at some point, it would make more sense to try to get at least a reasonable amount of buy-in between both our regulators, uh, industry, and also perhaps our consumer protection advocates um, and see if we can't come up with a reasonable compromise in the same way we do with self-regulation. For example, as we talked about in the online ad um, area, it might not be perfect. Everybody might not agree with every single thing, but that doesn't mean we can't come up with a set of rules that everybody agrees gives consumers a reasonable amount of protection and allows us to continue to thrive as a data-based economy, which in many ways we, we are. So we've talked about to whom the California law applies, what it protects, and that it covers personal information of consumers. But what we haven't talked about is what rights it gives consumers. As Justine explains, under the California law, consumers have the right to obtain personal information a business collects on them. They have the right to have that information deleted, and they also have the right to move that data. The California law also creates some certain opt-in rules regarding the collection of information and has some pretty specific rules that apply to companies collecting information on teenagers. Is a general matter, as a consumer, you have the right to access your data, you have the right to request a transfer of your data, you'd have the right to request deletion of your data. Obviously, there are nuances around those things, but right, the right to say, hey, I'd like to know what you collected about me, I'd like to know who you shared it with or sold it to. There is an opt-out right for selling of data, which is also written very, very broadly. And I think there will need to either be some explanation or some box put around that by the attorney general, um, where I think there's going to be a lot of confusion. But, you know, I want to know what have you collected? How are you using it? Who have you shared it with? I might need to take it with me. I might want to ask you to delete it. That's it in a very high level. One very new thing is a new right for consumers who are 13 to 15, age 13 to 15, that they would have the right to opt in. They would have to opt in to that selling. Typically in the United States, we give protection to those who are younger than the age of 13, 12 and younger. And here you would need a parent to opt in to that selling. But there are already a great number of protections and rights codified in the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. But 
California has created something new, um, and that impacts users in between those ages of 13 and 16. So I read it to be 13 to 15, 15 and 364 days, that you, you would have the right to opt in before your information could be sold. I think that's going to cause a fair amount of difficulty for U.S. businesses Most have really been set up with this idea of 13 being the threshold. We've had that for many, many years. And the issue is really that it's a question of whether or not, you know, you sort of willfully, did you know somebody was that age, in which case you have to offer this, or did you willfully disregard a consumer's age? And what exactly does that mean? I think it's going to be a very complicated question for a lot of businesses. Not to get too deep in the weeds in this data privacy stuff, but during our conversation, Justine raised some interesting questions about as to whether the California law will apply to de-identified data. De-identified information is information stripped of all direct identifiers. That is, stripped of information that can be used to tie back this information to the person to whom the information is connected. The way it is written, it perhaps does not exclude information that we typically consider de-identified information. A primary example of that would be hashed information. And oftentimes businesses are using typically hashed email addresses, which essentially become a persistent identifier Mm -hmm. that can be used, say, to match you in cross-device matching. So if you've logged in on your laptop and you've logged in on your phone through a hashed email, I can realize that that's my same customer. That's one example of that. So hashed information, sometimes phone numbers, sometimes something else, mostly email addresses, are used a great deal and are typically considered de-identified information. It's not that it would be absolutely impossible for somebody to re-identify it, but usually you have contractual restrictions Many businesses that are working with the de-identified information, in fact, could not. You can't just reverse the hash, for example. So typically, there's a lot of things that we sort of consider de-identified that I have some real concern might no longer be considered de-identified under the definitions of the CCPA. And let's remember that the CCPA has a lot of very complicated, broad definitions that sort of interact with each other. So it's every time you're reading the statue, it's like putting a puzzle together, right? The jigsaw puzzle together. What I think is really important for people to remember though, is that while we may validly have some concerns about persistent identifiers, whether that's an IP address or a hashed email or just an identifier that's been assigned to you, your user XYZ123456, and I recognize that in a cookie, or I recognize that because it's linked um, to some of your login information or whatever it is. Well, I understand that it is possible often to connect that to a sort of what I'd consider a truly identified person, you with your name and your address, for example, or your name and or your email address. At the same time, if we continue to treat these identifiers exactly the same as personal information, then we really take away any incentive from businesses to try to de-identify. Yet I think if you asked most consumers, would you like there to be a record and a guess of what your preferences might be in terms of blue shirts or white shirts based on number XYZ456123 or based on your social security number or your email address? Most of us would prefer to be de-identified. And so I really think we need to stop throwing everything into one bucket 
and acting as if it's the same. The risk isn't the same, right? The risk of to you if someone has your social security number versus if they have your email address is very different. And the risk to you if somebody's identified you under a made-up number that's a customer number associated with something or a number that's associated with a device, well, I'm not saying there are no privacy issues there. They seem significantly different to me. And I'm not sure we really want to put ourselves in a position where, for most businesses, there's no longer any reason to try to de-identify or to try to provide privacy protectives. I think it's really an, an inverse way of going about this. One of my goals for this podcast is to provide listeners with more than just theory. I'd also like to provide some practical advice. So I asked Justine where businesses and their attorneys should start to figure out how to comply with all these data privacy laws. We need to understand where we collect consumer data, particularly consumer data, but where we collect data, what we collect, where and how we store it, and who we share it with. Sounds reasonably simple. For a lot of organizations, it's not, right? Are you only collecting information online? Or are you also collecting it offline? Is all of that data going into your database or is it not? Are you operating multiple brands and multiple divisions? And are those linked up or are they not? There may be organizations that don't link your information. So you may shop at store A and you may shop at store B, but they don't actually combine that data even though there's one parent company. But now, it's possible, depending how it's set up and how one falls under the statute and whether or not, you know, how you fall under the definition of the business, do you need to put those together? Or maybe a better example would be if I'm operating multiple stores and, you know, you may buy one thing at my store downtown and you might buy another thing at my store in the suburbs. I may or may not connect those records, but now I would have to in order to be able to say to you, well, I've got your phone number and your credit card because I've maybe collected those in different places, but I'm one corporate organization under the statute. Things like that, again, it's going to depend business to business. What are my challenges? Where is this going to be a problem for me? Do I target or have a lot of teenagers? Is that going to be an issue for me or not? The very first thing is to say, do I have an understanding? Where do I collect data? What data do I collect? How do I store it? How do I use it? And how do I share it? Which can also mean who else has access to it. You gave a good example earlier where there may be a service provider, but that service provider is technically directly collecting that data through a tag, through a login, whatever it is. We need to take that into consideration as well. So as my conversation with Justine came to a close, one of the last things we talked about is the fact that law firms are not immune from these data privacy laws. And depending on their size and area of practice, they need to be sure they're complying with data privacy regulations, especially if they practice law in California. There is no reason I can think of right now that a law firm or any other service provider would be excluded here if you reach the thresholds that we talked about. Right. So then I guess that your advice to someone at a big law firm, or it doesn't have to be that big, but I mean, a decent-sized law firm would be to ask the questions of the firm you just mentioned, you know, what are you collecting, where are you storing it, who are you, who are you collecting it from, right? Yes. I mean, I think for any business out there, the first question is, do I come under the definition in the statute and will I be subject to the statute? Am I doing business in California or am I collecting data 
on more than 50,000 consumers on an annual basis. If, if a law firm's subject to this, it's probably going to be 25 million bucks, right? Probably, yes. Is the law firm's going to be subject of it? Yes. Yeah. I think that that's right. Although I would say if you are a class action law firm and you're dealing with large classes, you could certainly have 50,000 or more consumers, households, or devices in a year. You could receive for your commercial purpose. So certainly I think where we are receiving records on a million potential class members, that is in order to advance our commercial purposes. That's right, in order to advance the case. Perhaps there's an argument to be made that it isn't. Again, these are very broad terms that I don't think were fully thought through because it was put through so quickly. Um, So they're very broad terms with some defined terms, some not defined terms. I think it is going to be a bit of a jigsaw puzzle for almost everybody. But I think it's going to ensnare a lot of companies, right? Because the first question, I guess, the very first question is, do I collect personal information on any California resident? That's the first question, right? Because if I'm not doing anything, if I have nothing on anyone in California, then I'm the lucky, you know, 1% of companies that is not going to come under this law. Okay. I have collected some information on a consumer out of California. So then I have to ask, do I have annual gross revenues of $25 million or do I get personal information on 50,000 or more consumers, which are likely... California consumers? Or do I derive 50% more of my revenue from selling consumers' personal information? Do I hit any of those three thresholds, which is really four thresholds? Do I have anything on anyone in California? And if the answer is yes, then do I hit A, B, or C? So so going back to the law firms, certain law firms definitely could have that. I think certain law firms will have that. I think certain very large medical practices will have that. Um, very certain, very large accounting or other types of financial services firms will have that. Any big business is likely going to fall under this statute. California has an enormous economy. Most companies that hit a certain threshold are doing business in California. I think $25 million in annual revenue is pretty low when you're talking about companies that are then doing business in California. Agreed. Agreed. Well, this was excellent. A lot of good information there. Thanks for your time. How do people get a hold of you or if they want to learn more about InfoLaw Group? Our website is infolawgroup.com and my email is on there, but it's jgotchall at infolawgroup.com. Well, as always, we appreciate you listening. This has been another episode of Technically Legal. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. If you like us enough, we hope you leave us a good review. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.